All right, see if these words are familiar to you or not. Hold me close, hold me tight, make me thrill with delight. Let me know where I stand from the start. I want you, I need you, I love you with all my heart. Ring any bells yet? Keep it to yourself if it does. Every time that you're near, all my cares disappear. Darling, you're all that I'm living for. I want you, I need you, I love you more and more. I thought I could live without romance until you came to me. But now I know that I will go on loving you eternally. Won't you please be my woman? Never leave me alone, because I die every time we're apart. I want you, I need you, I love you with all my heart. Anyone know those lyrics? Who sang them? Not me. Not me. The song is, I want you, I need you, I love you, and has sold in excess of one million copies since it was recorded in 1956, April 11th. You know who recorded it? Right? The king of rock and roll. All right, Elvis Presley himself, the old crooner. <laughs> do you even know me? I, I didn't do the actions, right. I barely, I barely danced on my wedding day. Right, the, the modern love song as we know it today, was arguably transformed forever when Elvis hit the scene in 1953. And ever since, we mere mortals have been using crooners like these to communicate our affections for one another. So we'll um, use their lyrics, love songs, when, when I was in high school, we'd make mixtapes, oh, right? Yes. Mixtapes. Walk up to the girl of our dreams and say, I made a mixtape for you. Yes. And you younger ones have no idea how long that took. <laughs> now you can just sort of look up a playlist, right? No, you've got no idea. For decades, though, we've told each other when we think about love and romance and affection, we've told each other words like that, where I I can't live without you. Or we quote movie lines like, you complete me, all right? We We say to the other person, how much I need you. Or I want you, like Elvis sang. And maybe, maybe we have failed to see how much we have begun to equate, how much we've we've made these two things equal, love on the one hand and what makes me happy on the other hand. And the Bible paints a very different picture to that. Not that all secular songwriters have missed the point. Don't tell me it's not worth trying for. You can't tell me it's not worth dying for. You know it's true. Everything I do, I do it for you. Right? Brian Adams. Because there is the pursuit of love as we we sometimes call it, there is the pursuit of love that meets my needs. And we can wrap it up 
in all the romantic tunes we like, but at the end of the day, that type of love exists for my fulfillment. I need you, so I need you in my life to make me feel better about myself. You can, you can sell a million copies of songs like that, but at the end of the day, it is a shallow and pathetic image of human relational fulfillment. And there is another love story, a love song, a greater love, a higher love, and this is the love that we want to look at today. The passage that we're up to in our series through 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so if you haven't already, please turn to it. We are going to look at verses 1 through to 16 today. I'm not going to read it all the way through at first, like I often do. Instead, what I want to do is have you pray with me. I want you to pray for me, pray for yourself. And we're going to ask the Lord's help in handling his word today. And then we're going to dive into it and see how the Spirit of God ministers to us through it. So let's pray. Lord, we, we realise that so often as we come to subjects like love or romance or affection that we so easily let self drive that conversation and really we want to come to you first today to say how should we think about the way that we relate to one another how should we think about love? How should we think about affection and intimacy? So, Lord, teach us, we pray. Um, highlight in our own hearts the ways that we've twisted this and help us to align with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But before we break down this passage and reflect on it, I do want to be upfront on one of the topics that we're going to touch on, and that is the subject of divorce. Um, comes up in from about verse 10 down to verse 16. And not only divorce, but, but then divorce and how that affects our ongoing uh, future relationships. And, and I mention this up front because I know that it impacts quite a number of people here today. Some of you I've had personal conversations with already. Others of you may be nervous, um, wondering what we're going to say and, more importantly, how we're going to say that. I think, you know, there's... You can't talk to a room this size without having either directly been or indirectly been affected by relationships that have not worked and have, have maybe broken in ways that were painful. And although in our general conversation the world can talk about marriage and divorce fairly lightly, I don't think we ever should. You may be nervous or concerned about how we address it and even in talking about it, it may be pulling up to the surface some old wounds, old hurts and scars that have been difficult to heal. So from the outset, before we even go there, I want you to know this morning that you are loved. You're loved by God and you're loved by this church. I want you to know that our desire is to be a church that is unwavering in its commitment to the Word of God first and foremost, but simultaneously we are committed to this being a safe place to grow and to heal as disciples of Jesus, no matter what your story is. And I'm praying, and I have been praying and wrestling with the fact that I want you to both hear and feel that today. Now, in saying that, I don't actually think that this passage is primarily about divorce. It certainly talks about it. Or particularly about divorce and remarriage. And it touches on that as well. But instead, I think 
I hope that you will see that this text is addressing something even deeper, something much deeper than that, that affects every single person in this room. No matter whether you have walked through those difficult years of divorce or whether your marriage is, you know, you, you look at it and go, man, I, we, we're just happy and we're strong in our marriage and this is great. Or whether you're single today and you're thinking, I'd, one day I'd love to be married, but every single person in this room, I think we all need to hear what God is saying through this passage. So I've broken it down into sort of three main sections and maybe in your Bible, as you're reading it, you might even have three headings if your Bible includes headings, just so that we're all clear, those headings that are in the Bible, right? God didn't put those there. Um, He didn't even put the chapters and the verses there. Somebody else came along and decided on those. Um, And yet when people read the Bible and they sort of see the ideas that are there, sometimes it's a helpful way to be able to sort of group the thing, our, our thinking around those passages, and so they include little headings. So here are the headings that I've, that I've put down for the three main sections to this text. If you're a note-taking person, here's the place where you could say, this is Chris's point number one, um, and I've called it sexuality and selfishness. Now, last week, I was reported, at least, to have said the word sexuality or sex 99 times, apparently. (laughs) Someone told me. They said, my son counted, and then somebody else said, well, I got 78. (laughs) All right? So there's a little bit of... There's a little bit of inconsistency with our counting methodology, but it was... we We talked about a lot. I'm thinking that we're going to talk about that a little bit less today. Um... We'll see. Sexuality and selfishness. Let's read the text, verses 1 through 7. This is the first section that I want you to sort of focus in on. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman... But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to a husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then, coming together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. That's the end of verse 7. Look, it would seem, I think, that the church in Corinth had written a letter to Paul sometime earlier, I would say, and in part, Paul is now writing back to the church in Corinth and he's responding to some of their questions. He's got his own hit list of things that he wants to talk about, but he's also taking into account some of the questions that the church in Corinth has asked Paul, and so he's responding to them. So, depending on your English translation that you're reading from this morning, verse 1 contains a fairly, I think, shocking statement. Right? As I read it out to you a moment ago, it said this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's pretty broad, right? That's how the Christian Standard Bible says it as I read it out. Maybe if you're reading from the English Standard Version, the extremely sound version. (laughs) It says exactly the same thing, exactly the same wording. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations 
with a woman. Both of those translations, I would say, you know, good, good translations, good English translations, both of those translations are trying to put meaningful English phrases to a statement in the original language that literally says, if you use the literal, really literal meaning of each of these statements, it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what the literal meaning says, right? And I think what what happens in cases like this is that the translation teams that, that work on these English Bibles have to make a decision about what Paul was driving at. What is Paul saying when he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Right? Does he literally mean that men should never touch women? Like some type of full-on gender-driven social distancing. Men, this side, women, that side, don't ever touch. And we know that isn't the case. Pretty confident it's not the case. The context lets us know that Paul is going on to specifically talk about a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. That's why so many translations use the wording of sexual relations in the place of touch. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife. But even this still poses a problem, right? Does Paul mean that it is good for men and women never to have sex? I don't don't think so, (laughs) right? Partly because I don't think that's the case Again, he immediately goes on to encourage a healthy sexual relationship, right? So it's not just that blanket rule, men don't have sex with women. A, the population would cease in one generation. So some translators will include alternate options for how a phrase could have been translated. And in this case, the Christian Standard Bible um, includes that the translation team will put a footnote or they will even, f- for interest's sake, if I look up the Christian Standard Bible online, the online version of it, it reads exactly as I just read it out. If I read it from my print version, the Christian Standard Bible in my print Bible, this is how it phrases it. In response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. All right? The context lets us know what Paul wants to talk about. It's a very valid interpretation of the phrase. I think it fits the context much better. It is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. So let's have a look at Paul's instructions for a healthy sexual relationship within the context of marriage, which which is what Paul is talking about, to see why I believe this is right. Paul's, Paul's got this response to a question that the Corinthians had, and his response is, and you might even notice that it's in, in, in some sort of inverted commas in your Bible, his response is, it is really good, it's a healthy thing, a thing that to do, and that is that a man should not use a woman for sex. And we're going to see what the context of that is or why the emphasis, I think, should be on that phrasing. The first reason that Paul gives is based on the widespread acceptance of sexual immorality within that culture, and I would say within our culture. Our cultures are very similar in modern-day Western values as opposed to the Corinthian values of 2,000 years ago. It would seem that sex was seen as a, a means to gratify your own physical desires. So there were a number of people in the context of the Corinthian city, we can think about it in our own city, and that it is no secret that sexual desires drive the behaviours of both men and women, maybe in different ways, at different times, but they drive us. And Paul responds to them by saying, we we don't treat the act of sex as just some way to 
gratify my desires, the things that I want to do. It's the old saying, you know, if you've got an itch, scratch it, right? And in the Corinthian context and maybe in the wider cultural context of today, we might say, and it doesn't really matter who with. Because what's, what's there is my desire, my fulfilment is the objective, and so whoever I can do that with makes no real difference. Can we turn those lights off? Thanks. It'll just get a little bit darker up here, but that's all right. Thanks, mate. Paul, Paul wants to restrict. And I think it's okay for us to use that language because in our modern context, as soon as we start talking about restrictions, people start getting a bit like, oh, hang on, you don't put boundaries up, don't put restrictions up. But Paul wants to restrict the pursuit of sexual relationship within the safe boundaries of a marriage. That's what he wants to do. And I think in particular, he's addressing Christian husbands and wives. Right? He's addressing those within the church. So verse 2, because sexual immorality is so common, because we're surrounded by that culture of just fulfilling whatever sexual desires I might have with whoever might come along, Paul says each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. And he's addressing the church. However, even Christians aren't immune to selfishness. Right? So Paul goes even further with his response, down in verses 3 down to verse 5. And he says that Christian spouses have a duty to one another. Now, even this, again, in our current context, sexual sort of liberated way of thinking in this world, we start using language like that and people start to go, oh, that sounds a bit, I'm not sure about that. You know, there's still this, like, oh, you know, someone has rights over your body. I don't think that's very good. And let's just try to see what Paul's driving at here. The word duty to our modern ears might seem a little bit off. We don't like it very much. It can even seem maybe emotionless, like it's just some sort of you know, activity that we do. We've got a list of chores to do around the house. Vacuum the floor, clean the kitchen, mow the lawn, go to bed, do what husband and wives do. What's the next thing on the list? Instead, I... I think what we need to do is not read duty as a sense of obligation, like, I'm obliged to do this. Instead, I think we should read duty as a means by which we look to serve our husband and wife. This is the, remember what Paul first said? Don't, don't use another person. He addresses men, but I think, I think it goes both ways here. Men, don't use a... Woman, don't use a woman to gratify your sexual desires. Women, don't use a man to gratify your sexual desires. Instead, Paul started to switch the conversation away from using somebody else to serve me to now he wants to switch the conversation to say, how can you serve the other person? How can you think about your relationship with your spouse in a way that's not, what can they do for me? But now, how, how can I live and love to serve their need? Because modern sexuality, and I would say the Corinthian culture of sexuality, is inherently selfish. Right? Sex becomes a means by which we satisfy a desire. And that is devastatingly dehumanizing. When sex is reduced to an act and people are reduced to an object, Paul says 
Don't use people for sex. Don't objectify another person just to fulfill your desires. But when a man offers all of who he is with no sense of personal satisfaction and and he offers it to his wife and when she does the same for him, an astounding image of selfless love is produced. I'll speak to you husbands for a moment. Men, your wife owes you nothing. And wives, women, your husband owes you nothing. But husbands, you owe everything to your wife. Wives, you owe everything to your husband. The perspective is who is doing the demanding. When two people enter into a relationship, and whether it's talking about how they just live together, how they share their responsibilities of the house together, or how they act within the confines of their marriage and their bedroom, it's who is doing the demanding. Who exists for your satisfaction, or do you exist to serve and love another? Paul's talking about a mutual giving of yourselves with no sense of power imbalance or obligations to fill. This is about serving and loving your spouse in every arena of life together, even in the bedroom. So verses 1 through to verse 7 is primarily about sexuality and selfishness, the way that we think about intimate relationships in particular, within the confines of a marriage where there is a Christian husband and a Christian wife. And Paul says, think about the way that you address each other in that way. All right, verses 8 and 9 is the next little section that I want you to have a look at. If I was to entitle this I would say both singleness and marriage can be fulfilling. This is point two. Point two, both singleness and marriage can be fulfilling. Let's read it together. Chapter 7, verses 8 and verse 9. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. This is pause there. I think one of the lies that the church has bought into over the years is that marriage is the highest good. We've, We've either said that from the pulpit or we've inferred it with our conversations or by trying to set up every single person in the room with somebody else that the highest experience of humanity can only be found in marriage. And I would say that that's untrue. Jesus wasn't married. Jesus was not a lesser man. He was the fulfilment, the perfect fulfilment of all humanity, and he could live that way unmarried. I think the point of these two little verses, verses 8 and verse 9, is that Paul wants you to know that marriage isn't the only place where you can find relational joy and wholeness. It certainly can happen within marriage, and it can happen outside of it. Our our younger ones, or even those older who have found themselves single again, for whatever reason, I think often live life feeling as though that they will never find wholeness or completeness unless they find a partner in life to share it with. So let me tell you the worst kept secret there is. Marriage will not fix what you feel is broken in you. There is fulfilment to be found in marriage, that's for sure. But there is fulfilment to be found in singleness also. 
Both marriage and singleness can be environments of joy and selfless service. And both can be places of sorrow and selfish ambition. There was things about my own life as a young man who was single, and I just thought, you know what? When, when I get married, that will fix that. And all the married people in the room chuckle because you just know that's not true. But there is a redemptive power of marriage. And that's the third point that I want to make this morning. There is a redemptive power that can be found in marriage. Now, this is where, from verses 10 down to verse 16, I want to read it out. We are, it seems to be dominated by the idea of divorce. But I want, I want you to hear what I think Paul is driving at as he talks about this. There is a redemptive power of marriage. So let's read together from verse 10 down to verse 16. So he says, To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husbands, for all you know, you might save your wife. All right. Now we get to the bit where Paul talks about divorce. So I want to be careful I do want to be careful how I talk about this subject. I am painfully, I use that word deliberately, I am painfully aware that I'm in a position of representing God's heart on this matter before you today. And James tells me, I will stand at risk of greater or more severe judgment by what I'm about to say. I stand before God one day and I will, I will have to give an account. And that happens because I, I and others here in this room have the responsibility to open up this Bible and say to you, this is what God says. And God's saying, don't stuff that up, Chris. I'm also painfully aware of it because I know that this is a subject that's not just theoretical for a lot of people in the room. It's not just sort of going, oh, what does the Bible say about that subject matter? That that you've walked, some of you have walked this hard road and have felt the unique pain that comes from it. I'm also very aware that you can barely speak to two people who have gone through the road of divorce without hearing completely unique stories. So to super generalise about just one type of reasoning for divorce can be very dismissive towards others. I've also wrestled with this subject because over the years there have been Christians who I highly respect in the way that they handle the Word of God and their love for Jesus who come to very different conclusions on this matter. It's true that there are some Christians um, who love Jesus, who who love the church, who who pastorally care for their people, who are committed to the Word of God, and their conclusion is that there is no valid reason for divorce nor remarriage. And then there are others who would say, there are, and, and here are the reasons why divorce and remarriage should be seen as acceptable. And so there are some different conclusions that come 
to this point. And here's why I said earlier, though, that I don't believe that this passage is primarily about divorce, or for that matter, divorce and remarriage, even though Paul does mention both of those things. I believe that the primary point of this, mass, of this passage is to show us the redemptive power of a selfless approach to marriage. Because that's what Paul has been talking about. He's not just suddenly shifting gears. Because if we were to study what the Bible says about divorce in, in, in its whole, and, and maybe even divorce and remarriage, we'd need to take in a whole lot of other passages and a whole lot of other themes along with a pretty comprehensive study, I think, of some of the complex original language that gets used. We'd have to look at some of the cultural analysis of a people and time that we're, we're very unfamiliar with. And even after all that, we'd probably come to still a variety of conclusions, even within this room. And I know that would be the case, because as both I and the rest of the pastoral team have been thinking and reading and talking about this. We've, we've seen that a bunch of godly people that we admire do come to different conclusions on this. So with that being said, what I'm not going to try and do today is give you a, comprehen a comprehensive response, all right, to the topic of divorce. If you, if you would like to have that conversation, then that would be probably something that would be best done either in person or as a small group that we can sort of like, here are all the passages that are there, let's study it, let's read it together, let's think it through together, and to do that pastorally. And so I want to try and restrict my observations to the text that we've got here in front of us and what Paul is trying to say just in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the first thing I want you to point out is that the question that some people have about Paul clarifying here, who is giving a command? Did you see it? In verse 10, he says, not I, but the Lord. And then down in verse 12, he says, now I, but not the Lord. And some people are sort of wondering on this subject matter, you know, is this an issue of a command that Paul's talking about? Or is this an issue of a, a, an opinion that Paul has? You know, that we can maybe take or leave. I think it's much simpler than that. Paul is simply making a distinction between something that Jesus said directly, like Jesus directly spoke about divorce when he was alive on the earth, and then Paul then uses that principle and, and now he teaches on that and he applies it to a circumstance that Jesus didn't directly address. So in verse 10... He basically just quotes in summary form something that Jesus said. You can go back to the Gospels and see that. And then in verse 12, he wants to address a, a subject matter or a circumstance that Jesus didn't directly address. And so he says, so now I'm going to speak about this. And we know that the Spirit was directing him. So here's a summary of what Jesus directly spoke about on this topic. All right? This is a summary Jesus said more on this, you could read more across the Gospels about it, but Paul summarises a statement, and Jesus said, to the married, I give this command, so this is Paul talking, not I, but the Lord, and now he quotes Jesus in summary form, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. That's, that's what Jesus said, Paul quotes him, it's not everything that Jesus said on the topic. We, we know from reading the Gospels that there is more that Jesus address, addresses about the complexities of relationships that, that break, relationships that separate. He talks about, some people say, um, you know, there's, an, there's an, a clause to that statement where it says, apart from, apart from adultery. And so we know that there are other situations that Jesus addresses, but Paul summarizes a basic principle, and that is a Christian man and a Christian woman, if they're joined together in marriage, they shouldn't separate. But at its most basic level, here's what we can be sure about as we can consider divorce it's always heartbreaking. 
always. And there can be all sorts of reasons why divorce or why separation occurs, but regardless, it's always heartbreaking. God holds the covenant of marriage in such high honor and dignity that any time that it's torn apart, any time that it breaks, God knows that pain and hurt will flow from those circumstances. God hates divorce because he hates what it does to people. He hates the circumstances that lead to it. Marriage, in the form that God intended it, is meant to demonstrate a gospel reality that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. And so when the earthly image fractures, there is always a risk that the betrayal of the divine image will become distorted as well. And God wants the world to know that Jesus will never mistreat his bride. And Jesus will never abandon her. Jesus will never walk away from his bride. And God wants the world to know that. Now, I think Paul is directly applying Jesus' command to marriage where there is a Christian husband and a Christian wife. Because when Paul goes on to address a situation that Jesus didn't directly address, and that is you know, what Paul elsewhere describes as maybe an unequally yoked marriage, or a marriage between a follower of Jesus and someone who is not a follower of Jesus. He says that in verse 12, to the rest. Now, to the rest. So, so it, verse 10, verse 11, I think, is addressed primarily to Christian spouses, And then Paul says, now to the rest of you, which I assume, I think, means that there are people in the church in Corinth, just like there are people in the church here today, who who you walk as a follower of Jesus, but, but your spouse does not. And so Paul is addressing that situation. And Jesus didn't directly address that while he was alive on earth. This may have been, I think, to address the circumstances where someone was maybe already married before coming to faith in Jesus, but your spouse has not yet come to faith. And so Paul is saying, well, what should they do, right? Elsewhere, Paul commands us not to marry an unbeliever. He says, do not be unequally yoked. But what happens if you already are? What happens if you were both living your life, following your dreams, met each other, got married, fallen in love, and then one of you discovers the grace of Jesus. And their heart is turned towards God and says, I want to follow you for all the days of my life. And they're imploring their spouse, their husband or their wife, come follow Jesus with me. And they're saying, I don't know if that's for me. What do you do? Should you... Because Paul said, don't be married in an unequally yoked way. Should you say, well, my heart is for Jesus and your heart is for not, so we best get divorced. Here's how Paul addresses it. In summary form, verse 12 and verse 13, Paul says, if the unbelieving partner wants to remain married, then don't don't separate. Don't divorce on the grounds of being unequally yoked, right? Verse 15, he says, however, if the unbelieving partner wants to leave, he says, let them. The Christian is not bound. Lots of debate about what that word bound means. But the general assumption here that Paul says is that in that situation, as devastating, as hard and as hurtful as that will be, as a Christian and a non-Christian wants to walk away, on the bounds of your faith difference, on, on that grounds, he says then the Christian is not bound to that. So interestingly, I think Paul goes on to give some surprising reasons for staying committed to the relationship in a spiritually mismatched marriage. 
Why should we stay committed to this relationship if we both have different spiritual ideals? The first thing he says, though, is that the unbelieving spouse... Well, the first reason why is that the unbelieving spouse is made holy by their Christian marriage partner. That's in verse 14, beginning of verse 14. He says, listen, the unbelieving spouse, the husband or the wife, is made holy by their Christian marriage partner. What, I, what I'm fairly certain, actually I'm more than fairly certain, I'm absolutely confident that that doesn't mean is that that unbelieving partner is now a Christian simply because they're married to you. All right? Um, there has only ever been one way to find salvation and that is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Instead, I think we should see this term holy, Paul, Paul says you've made them holy, as its general meaning is set apart. The word holy means set apart. There's a way that Christian, here today, husband or wife, if you have an unbelieving partner, an unbelieving marriage partner in life, there is a way that your relationship sets them apart in a very unique way. I think this is a statement about the redemptive power of marriage. Even verse 16, he says there, didn't he? Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Or husband, for all you know, you might save your wife, he says. You don't know the way that your influence as a follower of Jesus in the intimacy of your marriage has an effect. It could take two months, two years, or two decades. You don't know. Paul says, you don't know. But stay if it's possible to stay, if there's a commitment to one another, if love and relationship, even though you have very different ideals of faith, if it's possible, then stay because you don't know what might happen if you live out your faith in that relationship. As you selflessly give of yourself, as you serve and love and demonstrate the grace of Jesus, Paul's saying, stay because you don't know what might happen. The second reason he gives, though, is that your children are also made holy. Or I think the same terminology could be used, set apart. That's in verse 14 as well. Likewise, I don't think it means that your children that are born into a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever are... I don't think Paul's saying that they're illegitimate in any way, or those kids are unclean in the sense of undirty, you know, that they're dirty in some way. I think it simply means that your children too will grow up with the privilege of a parent who loves Jesus. That they might not otherwise have. You know, a parent who, who prays for their kids as they go down to bed at night. A parent who, who will teach and demonstrate to them the gospel. A life of faith and what that looks like. And even serving a partner when you have some different ideals and goals in life. Like children like this, I think Paul is saying, are at an advantage. So if it's possible to stay, then stay. So here's how I would conclude, and we better, better wrap this up, because I think there's, there's some important um, application of this that we can demonstrate together shortly. Here's the summary. A life that's infused by the gospel, a life that is transformed and shifted and changed by the, the message, which at its heart is the good news of God's sacrificial love toward us, that type of life will seek to serve the other in whatever relationship they're in. Whether that's as a single person in the way that you serve and care for your friendships and families that you're involved in, or within marriage, as Paul's talking about here, the way that we can serve another in our marriage. That, that type of life infused by the gospel will seek to serve the other in whatever relationship they are in. Christian marriages are marked by people who do not use their marriage partner to gratify their own desires, but instead commit to serving the other's needs as their priority. Right? A life infused by the gospel, whether you are unmarried or even widowed, does not seek to use other people to fulfill them. And divorce, even when it results from legitimate circumstances, always involves a tearing of souls that will scar us. And notwithstanding valid reasons of a person's safety, 
The presence of a Christian spouse or parent has a powerful redemptive force in a family. So before I finish, I want to give a quick word to those who are hurting from the pain of divorce. God sees. God sees and he knows your heartache. This morning, maybe you think, I I just feel broken by it. Or you feel the need for healing in the deep places of your soul. Then I want to I want to simply implore you. God can meet you there. He can meet you there. The longings of your heart that you thought would remain unfulfilled, He can truly satisfy. He can. He truly is a God that can and does make all things new. That's the God we love. And that's the God who meets you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for our time that we shared together. This is a complex and it's a, it's a subject matter and a topic that, that touches us and, and there's hurt associated with it, Lord. I thank you that you can bring healing. Lord, help us as a church walk with each other through the complexities of relationships. But Lord, for all of us, regardless of our status of relationship or marriage or divorce or whatever it might be, Lord, help us to see how the gospel changes the way that we address and serve and love other people. Whether it be our spouse or a friend, a family member, whoever it may be, Lord, I pray that you would change us by the way that you love us so that we can serve and give of ourselves for others. Lord, for those married here today, Lord, protect us, we pray, from selfishness, from seeking to use people to fulfill our desires. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen and shape us all to demonstrate this great message of the gospel in the way that we relate to each other. We ask all of this, desperately calling out for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.